For many years, a television set was built with this wide black border that went around the outside. Now, you don't see it as much today due to the ultra-high-definition televisions that are out there. But for many years, this is the way TVs came out. This is the way they were produced. And the reason is because they're designed to create a contrast. It's a means of making that which is in the middle of the screen become more apparent, become more clear to you. And it's designed to make it sort of pop out. And it's the same thing we do with photos. Uh, when you think about that and you have a photograph, you want something to pop. This is a dark picture here. And the, the outer border there, and some dark characters too, but the outer border here is meant to make that which doesn't have as much light on the inside have a way of sort of popping out so that you can see it. And what is true about a picture, what's true about a television, it's the same thing about a story. Because it's often in the midst of a really dark theme that you discover there is a lighter theme, a great theme that comes about, it can actually pop you can see it much cleaner and much better due to the contrast. Now, if you have ever taken this book right here, these Bibles, and you purposed to sit down and you said, I'm going to read that thing through, you don't get very far into it before you discover there are a lot of dark themes that go on in this book. Amen? There's some dark and heavy stuff, some bloody stuff. Uh, this book is not something in which God decided, I'm going to hold back on these themes. He's very open about them. And he's not doing it because he's trying to shock you or startle you or say, I gotta get them to somehow read my book. You know, so I'll present these dark themes and maybe that'll titillate their senses and get them to come check it out. Not at all. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It addresses reality. And it addresses the reality of the dark themes and dark things that actually occur in our world. This book addresses murder. All throughout its pages, you'll see murders happening. Incest, homosexuality, sexual perversions, rape, the brutality of war, racism, people behaving badly, slavery is in its pages, the dismemberment of a human body, impalings, beheadings, the murder of children, cannibalism, and animals killing people. Now, some of you, if you haven't read your Bible, you're looking at it like, whoa, <laughs> really? All that's in here? You better believe all of that's in here. In fact, if you took this book and you wanted to make it into a movie, uh, depending on how much detail you're going to put in, you're going to have a hard time just keeping it at an R rating. It is that brutal. It is that grotesque. But again, it isn't God's effort to be sensational. It is, it's a whole purpose behind it is so that as a result of you looking at it, you see the dark themes, and because of that, you're meant to see the great themes that arise from it. It just makes it completely stand out. So God has to be honest with you and I in terms of the world if he's going to be honest about the way that he has sought to fix things. And so if, with that honesty, he's going to show you there's a contrast that happens between the way things are and the way he has fixed and designed things to eventually be in the direction he wants it to go. And think about it. It only makes sense. You can't really fully appreciate freedom until you have in, in some way experienced a form of slavery or being, in chain, or in, being held back. You can't understand the true depth of what love really means unless somehow you've experienced some sort of hate or pain or sacrifice that goes with love. You can't really understand faith 
until you have first understood and gone through fear. I don't think you can really fully understand man in his sinfulness, in his finiteness, in his temporality, without really beginning to get an understanding of who God is and his holiness, his aseity, his ability to exist outside of time and space and in eternity and his permanence. No, it is the contrast of the darker things that makes the great things that much brighter and closer to us. And today's passage, the one that we're looking at, it is dark. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, it is not only the darkest pages in the scriptures, this is the darkest event that has ever happened in the history of the world. It involves brutality, blood, the inhumane treatment of an innocent one, people who will find no mercy, no room for mercy and compassion. It's about injustice and violence against a truly innocent victim. It is dark. Now, we've been looking at the story of the cross as we've been these last several weeks and trying to get an understanding of what does this cross actually reveal and show us and tell us about Jesus and who he is and why he came. What was his purpose? What was it that he was trying to do? Because there, ladies and gentlemen, is the contrast that God wants you to experience. But first, you've got to be exposed to the dark. Then you can understand what he has accomplished. So we've seen Jesus already on display. We've seen him a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the Passover lamb. Last week, we looked at the passages that described him as the innocent one, the one who had no sin. Well, today we see him as the suffering sacrifice for sin. And so last week we left off, Jesus was in the court, Pontius Pilate had ordered Jesus scourged. Now when you just read that, it's real easy to just read that and move on. Sometimes it's good to just stop and let's think about this, scourged. To be scourged was kind of to be skinned alive in many ways, to have your skin just flayed off of you. In fact, the whip that was often used, it had these within the uh, thongs there, you had tend, tend to have bones, metal, Things such that whenever it hit the skin, hooks, it hit the skin, it was meant to pull the skin away. It was meant to just shred a person's back. And so this is what Jesus has gone through so far. And in many cases, the flaying was a death sentence in and of itself. Didn't happen to be the case with Jesus, but in many cases it was. So it's here with the flayed back and sides of Jesus that we then enter in and come back into the story. So if you would, I'm gonna ask you if you would to stand while I read our passage in Matthew 27. We begin in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. 
And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified and were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Father, we have your word because you have chosen to show us things regarding yourself and ourselves, your plan, what it is that you want, that you want to accomplish, that you want in us. And so we pray and ask in these next few moments as we've purposed to go through your word, that you would speak to each one here exactly where they need to be spoken to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, often, whenever we read accounts in the Gospels, a lot of times preachers, and I'll put myself in this category, we like to look at the various ones. So we'll look at what happened in Matthew, and we'll compare it to Mark, Luke, and John. And that's a good thing, to be able to get a full picture of what happened. Yet at the same time, sometimes it's good, whenever you're doing a study in the Bible, to only look at what that particular author revealed within his Gospel. And that's what I'm going to do with you today. I'm not necessarily going to compare the other scriptures because sometimes what these authors, well, actually what all these authors want to do is they present to you an information, but they don't present it to you exhaustively. They don't tell you every single thing about the cross. And the reason is because they're presenting to you the information and it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they're giving you the information that they think is important regarding the themes and the purposes for which they were writing. And so that's what I'm going to do with you this morning. We're only going to look at it from the perspective of what Matthew has revealed to us. And Matthew was a Jew, and as a result, his gospel, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is written primarily to Jews. We all get the blessing and the benefit of reading it, but there's a specific purpose he has in ministering and speaking to the Jews. And he's been answering the question all throughout his gospel. Y'all remember what it is? If Jesus is the king, where's the kingdom? Where is this king? What, what, what do we make of this king anyway? And so if Jesus is the king, don't you think he'd have some pretty big name titles? You know, titles like, I don't know, king of Israel, king of the Jews, son of God. Well, in the text we just read, all three of those titles were used about him. Not necessarily in the most honorable way, though, were they? In fact, if anything, they're used as a form of mockery against him. So what do you think about the king in this text, what is Matthew doing here? What's he communicating to us? That's what we're going to explore. 
The first to mock here are the Roman soldiers. It tells us that they're in the praetorium. Now, I've got a picture up here. This is in Israel. They've got this little city that's laid out. It's supposed to look like the old town uh, as it would have been in the days of Jesus. And I have in the circle there this little building. It's got these four tower structures around the corner of it. That's called the praetorium. And it's here in the praetorium that uh, you would have the Roman governor, the praetor, abide, and he would stay there with his soldiers. And they built it up kind of high. I don't know if you can really make it out clearly in this picture, but they built it up high so they can look into the temple compound. Now, Rome, in occupying Jerusalem, they weren't trying to just always upset the Jews, and sometimes they were trying to honor certain things that the Jews wanted. The Jews didn't want Romans in the temple courtyard. So thus you have the praetorium. It's up, it's high, and now you can look down into the temple. And they did it for a purpose right? It's just like what your mom did when you were in the car in the back seat. What would she say? Don't you make me come back down there and take care of you. Well, as they're standing looking in the temple, it's a way of saying, don't you make us come down in there. You guys better behave down there. Well, they've taken Jesus out of this, uh, out of this area and they've taken him into this facility. And it's here that the bloody Jesus goes in and he is mocked and he's ridiculed by these soldiers. It begins with unclothing him, so they stripped him naked. Then they reclothed him, put him in a little red gown, sort of a mockery. You wanna, you're, you're a king? Well, let's make you look like a king. Oh, you're a king. King needs a crown. We'll get you a crown. And they take a row of thorns, assemble a crown out of that, put it on his head. You know, every king needs a scepter, you know, a sign of his authority. We'll give you a reed. There's your scepter. And so they go and they call him by his first title in this passage, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him, take the reed from his hand, turn around, hit him upside the head with it a few times. It's a complete and total mockery. Now, I want you to note in this text who this is. These are not Jews. These are the Gentiles. These are the Romans that are treating him this way. It's just our reminder, all men would revile him. It wouldn't be only the Jew. It would be all humanity. And after a time, they've had their fun with him. They went ahead and they clothed him back. And because, as they're going to take him to the crucifixion, once again, the Jews didn't necessarily like people walking through the streets naked. They saw that it's, it's, it's unclean, it's inappropriate. And so they're going to put clothes back on him as he makes his march with his cross. And so off to Golgotha he goes to a hill called the Place of the Skull. Now, there he's going to be nailed on a cross. And the cross typically was put at a crossroads. And you were going to understand why. Because anybody coming into the town would look, they would see these people hanging from a cross and stop and say, now, um, why are they up there? Oh, they did that? <laughs> you bet I'm not going to do that. And that was the whole point. It's a lesson. It's a display for others walking on. And that's where he'll be so everyone can see. And the passage says that they would give him wine, and in it is mixed gall. Now, you all know what gall is? It's bile. Typically, they would take it from an animal. That's something that you get from your liver and your gall bladder. So it's here. They take this. They mix the drink up, and they would give it to people because it's a form of an anesthetic, a very mild form of mercy. But Jesus won't drink it. He will not drink it. What well, is he just, is he a glutton for punishment? Is that it? Not at all. I can't help but think that the whole reason he's doing this is because he is doing exactly what his father wanted him to do. And he didn't want anything tainting his senses, tainting his ability to think. Because though he was fully God, he was fully man. And he wasn't going to let anything alter that. He was going to be faithful to the end. And Matthew, 
he doesn't necessarily go into the whole crucifixion aspect. He just says in verse 34, when they had crucified him. Matthew leaves it up to you to hear the nails, to understand what's going on. One nail in each arm, suspended. Then you take your feet, cross them over, put one nail that would go in between both feet. And the whole idea being that you're somewhat suspended, but with bent knees. And that, that hanging portion, that hanging aspect that the individual will do, it would be a form of suffocation. So the only way you can catch your breath is to push on your feet to elevate yourself. So you're pulling on the nails, you're pushing against the feet. It's just an increase of tortuous agony. And all you do with every time you grab a breath is you're just transferring where the agony is going to come from. That was the cross. That's where Jesus has gone. But now, here on the cross, he is made naked. There, he will have his clothes taken off. And it was meant as a form of shame, of embarrassment to other people. In fact, this is typically what um, conquering armies would do with their captors. They'd strip them naked. And as a result, they would march them wherever it is they needed to march them. But the whole idea was, we've conquered you, we will shame you, and we will humiliate you. And so, I, I mean, when, I remember when I was going through my um, training as a student pilot, one of the things they did is they wanted to prepare you for prisoner of war camp. And so they would simulate a lot of things that you would go through. And one of the things was, they would strip you all naked. And you would all be naked, and then they'd take you, and they'd tuck you in this tiny little box and leave you there for a few days. And, uh, but anytime you came out, you're right there. You're totally exposed. It was a form of humiliation. And here, Jesus is naked. I want to camp on this. Don't dismiss that. Because as we're going to see, when Jesus goes to the cross and he takes your sin, my sin with him, he takes your shame with him too. You are meant to see him naked. You are meant to see that shame and realize that's mine that he took with him. As a result, the soldiers have his clothes. They have dice. They're just down at the bottom of the cross shooting dice, figure out who's going to get to keep his clothing. And they stayed close because they're not going to allow anybody else to come along and as a result, uh, try to take, make some effort to bring him down from the cross. So they're going to remain throughout the duration. And on that cross, a sign is put above him. This is the second declaration as to who it is that's being crucified. And the title, this is the King of the Jews. Again, remember, this is the point Matthew's been making throughout the entirety of his book. This is the King of the Jews. And it's here, it's made. Not in the way you would expect. It's in a very humiliating way. And nobody here has sympathy or empathy, do they? Nobody. My goodness, even the robbers on either side of him, as they're going through the same thing, even they are mocking him. And there's a part of me that has wondered, was this cross originally meant for Barabbas, the guy that Pilate let go in exchange for Jesus? I mean, Barabbas was a murderer. Was this cross meant for him? Were these two guys on either side of him sort of Barabbas's henchmen that they were all caught together? Because if you were going to be crucified... You wouldn't take the whole cross, you would take the cross beam only. And then you would get to your destination by dragging that through the, the city until you got to the place. But typically they would have the vertical post either set up, arranged, a hole dug, a frame established. And so somebody was supposed to take this position. And it looks like Jesus 
has now become the one who would take their place. I've always wondered if it's Barabbas. I don't know. What must he have thought when he saw this? And despite all of this brutality, there is no pity. There is no mercy. Not one bit. I have, I have a distinct memory. I was about eight years of age in which I was across the street in my neighborhood. I was playing with my best friend. I don't remember what he did, but he made me angry. I was livid, and we got in a fight. And I mean, it was a knockdown, dragout fight. I distinctly remember I got him and was able to pin him on the ground. I was able to put my knees on both of his arms, so I held him down on the ground like this, straddling his chest. And I remember with my eight-year-old self with my hands, just punching him in the face as hard as I could. And I think it was on just a second punch. This guy's nose utterly exploded in blood. I will never forget it. And it was like this river just came out of his nose. And I will never forget the feeling that I had in that moment. All of my anger instantly was gone. Every bit of it. All I had in that moment was pity, deep regret, sorrow. And I just wanted to try to make things right in that moment. And that was 49 years ago. And I still remember, and recalling it this week, it just sends this weird feeling in my stomach. And yet, as this is going on with Jesus, that doesn't happen. In fact, if anything, the mockery just goes up a notch, just increases with him. No pity and sorrow. Instead, they get the third title. Hey, He said, I'm the son of God. He said, I can tear the temple down and rebuild it. He's the king of Israel. There's another title. That's what he is? Oh, surely he can get himself down. He saved others. This guy can't even save himself. He's a fraud. Do something miraculous, Jesus, and then we'll believe. Very interestingly, something miraculous does actually occur in this moment. It's a dark miracle, literally a dark miracle. Darkness comes on the land at high noon until 3 o'clock. This is the point where in the day the sun is directly overhead. It's supposed to be at its brightest. And it's as if God used nature to say the dark wrath of God has come down. Now, that happens. Everybody in that moment at a minimum needs to go, okay, this is a little freaky. This is not the norm. What is going on here? This is sort of a big deal. And there comes a point when the lights go out that you say, you know, I don't think this is a coincidence. Much like what you're experiencing right now. It's not a coincidence. It's meant to have everyone take note. And this goes on till three, until Jesus cries out asking God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other people heard him. They confused what he said. They thought he's calling down for the prophet Elijah to come down and to come help him out. But that wasn't it. In fact, he cries out, we learn here, with a loud voice. He's in full command of his mind and of his speech. And here, the first time in eternity, Jesus, the Son of God, is broken in fellowship with the Father. There's a separation that's happened. And that's the dark theme. Sin has a cost. It's a big cost. 
And it is at the cross when you come there and you see this happen. It's at the cross you come to realize Jesus is the one who came to pay that price for me. Jesus is the suffering servant. and He's the sacrifice who willingly absorbed the wrath of God against our sins upon a cross. And I want to remind you something. This was all in accordance with the plan of God. You do realize that, right? God the Father, he purposed and planned that this would happen. Jesus Christ was going to be the one who would accomplish it. Later on in the New Testament, we'll discover there's the Holy Spirit of God who completes this act of salvation in an individual. All three persons of the triune God are involved in your salvation and are involved at the cross. To contrast for us, God's wrath against sin with the great and deep love that God has for us. Again, this is Matthew. Matthew the Jew. All throughout this passage, he's been quoting Old Testament. And he did that for a reason. He wants you to know this was in accordance with the plan of God. It wasn't an accident. Things aren't just wildly out of control, though it seems like it. This is all part of what God has constructed. In fact, in my Bible, I I like to use the New American Standard Bible. And throughout that translation, some of yours do the same thing. When you see an Old Testament passage being quoted, it'll put it in all capital letters. And that's meant to make you stop and go, okay, what book of the Bible is that coming from? Then you go look in the little side margins, find the cross-reference to find out where in the Old Testament it is. And all throughout this passage, it is loaded with Old Testament references. You see it in verse 34, 35, 39, 43, and 46, and all of them are referencing Old Testament quotations. It was God getting his people ready to say, this is the plan that I have. You didn't see it coming this way, but it's always been the path and the plan. All showing you that the king came first not to be regal. The king came to be a sacrifice. That was his purpose. God isn't reacting to anything in the moment. This isn't plan B. This was always plan A and how he would redeem humanity from sin. You know, if you have been reading with us this past year throughout your Bible, we've been going through this two-year Bible reading plan. So you've already gone through, if you're keeping up, you've gone through Exodus, you've been through Leviticus, now you're in Numbers. And I think all of you would agree that as you keep reading, there is an awful lot of blood spilled on those pages. All these animals that are dying as part of this sacrifice unto God. People willingly bringing this animal because, and then when they would bring it to the temple, they would lay their hands on this animal. It was this visible outward sign of saying, my sin is being transferred on to this creature, this innocent one. And now this innocent one will go in, have its life taken and be slain in my stead as my substitute. And the book of Hebrews lets us know that was always just getting you ready for the one sacrifice that really would take away sin. And that was Jesus, what he did on the cross. My picture, if you were in Israel, you know, on any given day, you would see people and they've got their cow, they've got their goat, they've got their uh, bird in a cage on a rope, taking them with them to the temple in order to kill them. The image that I have here is God the Father is walking through the camp. And the son is next to him, but he's not on a rope and he's not in a cage. He is willingly going with his father to go and to be that sacrifice so that he could accomplish the father's good plan. And this should not be a surprise to anybody. 
God said, this has always been the plan and I've shown it to you all throughout this Old Testament. This is how I work. This is what I'm doing and this is what I will accomplish. The ladies that are on the retreat this weekend, they're going through the book of Isaiah. I don't know if they're gonna go through Isaiah 53, but in that chapter in particular, a profound Old Testament passage that tells you all about the one, the suffering servant who would come to take away our infirmities. He'll take our diseases. He came to be bruised the one who by his stripes will be healed. He'll take the wrath and the punishment so we don't have to. Jesus is that suffering servant. It's him. And the whole point, Jesus' purpose here was to undergo this darkness, to go through it because that's the dark frame that would contrast with and illumine the great love that God has for all of us. This is how love is put on display. It's by how far God would go. Beyond the cross, ladies and gentlemen, not even God can go any further in taking care of that sin and in showing you his love. And I'll remind you, when, when Jesus went to the cross, this isn't some payment that's going out to Satan, all right? Satan didn't do anything. All Satan does is he stands in God's court as the accuser and says, God, you're holy and you're just. I'm just calling on you to be who you are. These are sinners that are coming in front of you. So are you going to be God or are you going to defy your godness and put up with injustice? And it's there where God says, no, I will uphold my justice completely, but I'll also do it in love. And I'll do it through my son who will take that sin upon himself. And as a result, the penalty is paid in full. It is complete and total. You are covered but it's in the contrast of the cross that God shows us the brightness and the deep, deep love that God has for you, for you. There's an old story. It's told about a Cyrus who was at one time the founder of the Persian Empire. And it said that he had a prince that was brought before him with his family. The prince came down, stood before him, and Cyrus asked this prisoner, what will you give me if I release you? The prince said, if you release me, I'll give you half of all my wealth. It's yours. Cyrus said, okay. What will you give me if I release your children? And to that, the prince said, if you release my children also, king, I give you all I possess, everything I see. Cyrus looks at him again and says, then let me ask you this. What will you give me if I release for you your wife? And to that he said, your majesty, for that I would give my own self. And Cyrus was so moved by this man's response. He not let him go free. He let his whole family go with him. He released them all and let them go back. As the story goes, man's going back and he's just marveling at the greatness of Cyrus and the power of Cyrus and how regal he was. And in talking with his wife, he says, my goodness, did you not see that man? What a king. He was grand. He was regal. He was handsome. He was, he was striking. Wasn't he something? And with a look of deep love for her husband, his wife just looked him in the eye and she said, I didn't even notice because the whole time I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. The darkness of being willing to give his life up for the one he loved illumined that love so much brighter. 
Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus the king is willing and has given up his life for you. But he gives an invitation in love. Will you surrender yourself unto him? Would you bow with me? As the worship team comes up, let me just ask you a question with your heads bowed, eyes closed. Where are you with Jesus? Have you embraced the love that he has offered unto you? How do you do it? You do it by basically believing that this is who he is, the great one, the savior, the one who can take your sin, and you're trusting him to have it. Then what do you do? As a result, you just follow him. That's it. In faith and in love, you follow him. He'll take care of it from there. His spirit will come on you. His spirit will change you. And his spirit will begin to lead you and to know how to follow him and to be deliberate in your love for him and how that love is manifest and shown. And if you've never done that, then it'd be my privilege in this moment just to lead you in a short prayer. And it can go something as simple as this. My Lord... I am a sinner, and I know it, and you know it. And Father, in this moment, I now understand why Jesus came and what he, what he did. And while I don't fully understand everything about everything, you told me that if I'll believe and trust in him, that he could take care of that, that you then would take care of me to save me from my sin, to draw me unto yourself, and to give me eternity with you. And my prayer now is that I will believe and that I will entrust myself to you. Friend, if that's the prayer, if that's the heart behind what it is, it isn't a specific prayer per se that saves an individual. It is the heart of belief and trust in what we just communicated. That my friend, you have left death and entered into life. And if that's so, you need to tell somebody to allow God through his church and his spirit to work in your life and to show you more of who he is. And my invitation to you is, after this service, to do that. We'll have people up at the front after the last song, and I'd invite you to come and to allow God to work in that change in and through you. Might you do so.